Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, September 9th, 2013. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And the Around the Nation podcast in its, I'm going to say, eighth year, although I could be wrong, uh, is where Keith McMillan, who is the uh, Around the Nation columnist and deputy managing editor of D3Football.com, and I, Pat Coleman, the uh, uh, executive editor, whatever I'm calling myself these days. What we do is we take the uh, events of Saturday and Friday and Thursday and whatever other game day games were played on, break them down, uh, tell you our take. This is our first brush at analysis on what happened last week, and then we take a quick look ahead at uh, the big games scheduled for the next week. And uh, I would say um, I could try to be optimistic and say that the first couple of podcasts are under an hour, and most of the rest of them are an hour. But to be honest with you, the way we've been running the last few years, we just have so much stuff we'd like to tell you about that almost all of these podcasts start at about an hour, and by the end of the season, I'd say we're uh, we're pushing an hour and 15 minutes. So uh, I would recommend take it and listen however you listen to podcasts. You don't need me to tell you how to listen to a podcast. So... That's uh, that's what the Around the Nation podcast is. It's called Around the Nation because that's the title of Keith's column. And we break down things that, oddly enough, went on around the nation. And part of the big story this offseason, of course, in Division Three was the uh, change at the top in Division Three coaching circles where the uh, top two winningest coaches in Division Three history, including the winningest coach, Percentage-wise, in you know, on the planet, and the uh, winningest coach by terms of number of wins in college football history, each stepped down, each retired this offseason. And both of their teams took the field this week for the first time this season, and both of them struggled a little bit before coming back to win it. We're talking about uh, St. John's, uh, formerly John Gillardi's team, now Gary Foshing's team. They came back to beat Wisconsin River Falls on Friday night. And then Mount Union, formerly Larry Karras' team, now Vince Karras' team, uh, started strong, then gave up the lead in the fourth quarter against Franklin and came back and won that game as well. Uh, and if you wonder how we get to an hour, that's how. We, we go uh, maybe three, four minutes each without uh, letting the other person talk. I, I'm just as bad as you, Pat. The Mount Union game, let's get to it. It was it was something different than than we see that we've grown accustomed to seeing from Mount Union. Uh, but so is the, the whole Mount Union roster is, is completely different from the team that won the Stag Bowl last season. Uh, Kevin Burke, the quarterback, the only starter back. We talked about the coaching changeover, which is you know probably has as big effect a, as any coaching changeover could anywhere. You know, same same thing at St. John's, where the, where the coach is not just the, the – uh, well, at least at Mount Union, the coach is, is the mastermind, but it's also the, the personality of the program. And, uh, you know, in, in Alliance, Coach Karras is still on campus, still the athletic director, and, and Vince Karras is his son, but he's also uh, his own man. He's got his own personality. He's uh, been a uh, champion as a player, been coach on eight championship teams, been the defensive coordinator uh, last year during the Stag Bowl. But, you know, teams going to have a different personality, but the, the – I think the big reason they were different, and I got a chance to watch bits and pieces of the game before we uh, did the podcast on Sports Time Ohio. Um, the, the the big difference is personnel. I think more than their personality. And uh, the, the Mountain Union just doesn't have the the roster they had last year. They look it looked like a team in week one, and uh, you know, except on that final drive where where Kevin Burke you know kind of calmly leads them down the field has a big big play on a scramble, and then a touch pass down to the one yard line uh, right after Mountain Union fell behind where Franklin took the lead uh, you know Mount Union comes back and scores and then is able to, to run the clock out. And you talk about Kevin Burke of course he's one of the players who is a holdover from last year he started from day one last year as a sophomore uh, and there were only a couple of starters back on offense uh, he's one of them and a, a completely new receiving core around him. It looked like he had already found his favorites in the new group uh, Jack Nichols had eight catches and you know he was the guy uh Kevin Burke looked like he went to in clutch situations when they need, you know, they needed a, a first down. And then uh, Sherman Wilkinson had a couple of big plays down the field, and that looks like he's going to be the deep threat. So if you're wondering who's going to be the next Cecil Shorts, Jasper Collins uh, in the in the uh, Mountain Union paradigm, there, I guess, um, you know, Sherman Wilkinson. I think he's the downfield guy. Jack Nichols is going to catch a lot of passes. If this this first game is at least uh, any indication. Burke looks as good as he's ever looked. Uh, I thought, you know, um, the, the 
struggles Mountain Union had in the second half were due to turnovers, but all the, the turnovers were fumbles. Uh, two Mason Minnick fumbles in the second half helped keep Franklin in the game. Mountain Union also fumbled the opening kickoff of the, the second half. And, uh, you know, so Franklin picks the ball up you know, around the 10-yard line and is able to punch it in pretty quickly. And that was maybe what got them a little bit of momentum in believing in the game, uh, in themselves during the game. But I thought this is a this is a credit to Coach Vince Karras, and this is something, you know, maybe you'd see Larry Karras do. Uh, Vince stuck with Mason Minnick on the final, well, not the final drive, but the scoring drive. He's the guy who... Um, who carried it in for the touchdown? He got he got I think six carries on the final drive, and uh, he had, had had two fumbles, key fumbles in the second half, and he went back to him. So you know that's as a new coach, that's how you earn your players' trust. Uh, you know by by sticking with them even when they have a rough game. And in week one, you know guy, guys' performances are going to be all over the board. You're going to have some some shaky games. You know, one thing to keep in mind too for Mount Union is. Uh, we were expecting to see Roman Namdar in the uh, lineup at wide receiver. He's the guy who had been, uh, you know, a, a, a quarterback kind of buried down the depth chart, and because of his uh, arrest in an off-campus incident this week, he did not play on Saturday. I guess whether or not we know whether he's going to come back and play in a future week, obviously that's something that uh, you know they were expecting to see him, and they did not have him available in that manner. Yeah, and, and you know, as much as we talk. Uh, about Mount Union in this game, and, and you know, obviously they're the team that won, they're the defending national champion, they're the team with the the coaching changeover. Got to mention Franklin in this case too, because that that's a program that has been a dominant program in its conference, but hasn't really been able to get over the hump. You know, maybe can get out of the first round in the playoffs, but not, but can't. But ha- but, but you know, we saw Mike Leonard, uh, the Franklin coach in Salem a few years back. And he, you know, his team wasn't there, but he's there taking in the atmosphere. And that shows you that there's a coach thinking, how can I get my team to the stag bowl? What do these teams do? You know, we saw Glenn Caruso do the same thing. And we see him down there. And then the next year he brings his, his team down there. That, those are coaches that are, that are you know, they, they, have, they have good teams. You can't just, you know, be a 3-7 and seven team and go to Salem and think you can bring your team to the stag bowl. But when you get to a certain level, I think, in D3 and you and you – We'll keep a close eye on the standard bearers and say, how can we compete with those guys? You know, that's the reason that Franklin wants to play Mountain Union. And uh, I thought they acquitted themselves well. I thought defensively in the second half, uh, they they were pretty sharp. You know, obviously the turnovers helped, but there was a point in that game, even after Franklin uh, had scored that quick touchdown, Mountain Union drove all the way down the field and gets inside the the five-yard line and Franklin holds, you know, holds them to a field goal. And, uh, you know, that's what enabled them when they came back, that's what enabled them to have a 27-23 lead instead of that being a 27-all game at that point. So I thought there were some, some things that Franklin showed in this game you know, that, uh, that showed that they, they're a pretty legit top 25 team, could be a contender down the line. Uh, the offense is, is potent, as Franklin's offenses always are, but I thought they looked good at, at times in this game on defense as well. Yeah, if you look at uh, the rushing uh, totals on both sides, I mean, Mount Union is certainly accustomed to rushing for more than uh, 3.7 yards a pop. Uh, Germany Woods, you know, in his first game after sitting out a year because he transferred within the Ohio Athletic Conference from OAC member Heidelberg to Mount Union, he had to sit out a year uh, because that's a conference rule. There's not a Division Three rule about uh, transfers in that manner. Um, but he, So he sat out the entire 2012 season, and his 2013 didn't start off particularly well. On the other side, Franklin... You know, the final total says 36 carries for 78 yards, but, uh, you know, minus 16 of that is on, a, uh, I guess, a bad snap. If you look at that, they uh, they rushed for, you know, almost 100 yards, and that's a, a lot of rushing yards that uh, Mount Union doesn't necessarily give up. And to be honest with you, you know, as, as potent as Franklin's offense has been, I wouldn't really necessarily picture them as a rush, as a running team. No, and I mean, when you watch these two teams play to they're they're running read option they're running the same package uh combo plays they're calling them now that that you see teams in the nfl running you know the the uh the um you know the patriots plays that you know they're hard they're, they're hurrying up getting getting back to the line right away not giving the defenses chance to adjust or to substitute personnel um so these they're they're running the most advanced offense Available, both Franklin and Mount Union, I thought. Uh, and they both have quarterbacks who can do it. You know, uh, Kevin Burke, obviously, and, and Johnny West, two of the best in Division Three. The other uh, big coaching change, of course, 
uh, John Gilardi, who coached St. John's for you know more than sixty years, or, or more than in his sixth decade as a head coach in the, at the collegiate level, stepped down this off season. There was a you know a little bit of an internal battle, I guess, as to who would replace him. Uh, they had their finalists were three St. John's grads, three people you know well steeped in the uh, in the St. John's tradition. And they uh, go with Gary Foshing, uh, who is a, a longtime assistant. And his team comes out on Friday night at Wisconsin River Falls in a game I was at, and you know looked flat at you know in pregame, looked flat for about the first fifty-five minutes at least on offense. Had some had some success defensively, and then in the final three minutes of the game, I can't even necessarily say that they found you know that the. the uh, that the light switch flipped on and they uh, started doing doing some good things. They made a couple of great catches, um, but you know River Falls made had some uh, had some real uh, defensive lapses in the final three minutes. Um, St. John's comes down and they uh, score a touchdown at the end of a 74 yard drive in 209. They did look good in the hurry up uh, under Nick Martin, who's uh, is who has uh, won the quarterbacking job in preseason camp. Um, they scored uh, score a touchdown to tie the game up with uh, 55 seconds left. And then River Falls just completely uh, gets away from their game plan a little bit. Um, there's a sack on second down uh, I, uh, uh, of Ryan Kuzilek. Third down and long. Uh, they uh, Just a, a short run up the middle. Uh, St. John's takes time out to stop the clock. Uh, on fourth down, they get the ball back on a punt at their own 38-yard line with 22 seconds left. And then, you know, basically one play, Nick Martin finds Ben Krebsbach uh, down the sidelines to get down to the River Falls 23. And then with six seconds left, St. John's brings on a freshman kicker who had... Uh, who said he'd never completed a, never made a kick from beyond 40 yards in his life, and he kicks a 40-yard field goal with two seconds left to win the ball game. They win 17-14. And, you know, good for Gary Flashing. I mean, can you imagine what kind of pressure that is to follow a coach who's been there, you know, longer than most people have been alive? Yeah. That, you know, um, Coach Gallardi was was – one of the standard bearers in Division Three, not just wins and losses, but but thinking, you know, outside the box and and you know keeping football fun and and you know Coach Foshing obviously coached alongside him, um, so he, he I'm sure a lot of the elements of the program are the same, but there still has to be some kind of pressure, especially from a fan base as um, devoted, devoted. Thank you. That's the perfect word. As devoted as the Johnny's fan base is, uh, you know, to to whether or not they make the right decision, or if they, or if, uh, if they go on to have a lot of success from here on out, it's got to be good to get the first one off your back to beat a WIAC team. You know, you, you just put your whole heart and soul into the game, and uh, it's got to be good. I imagine for for him, it's a satisfying feeling, and, and for the St. John's kids and that program to get off on the right foot. Yeah, pretty big, uh, pretty big night for them. Uh, Gary Foshing had no voice left by the end of the game. Uh, so if you watch the uh, um, the post game interviews with him afterwards, uh, you may have a little trouble understanding what he's saying. It took uh, a couple of bottles of water and then finally a uh, a breath mint of some sort in order for him to actually be um, understandable. Let's put it that way. Um, on the River Falls side, you know River Falls with a, a new uh, a new quarterback Ryan Kuzilek who looked pretty good. Uh, he threw the ball well, threw a crisp ball. He had 18 rushes for 106 yards. I think now in the WIAC, when you see a guy like that, uh, you immediately might uh, draw the comparisons to Nate Wera, and I could see that there's some similarities. Um, you know, obviously not quite the skill set, but um, you know maybe something that uh, that could develop there. And a couple of uh, big catches, big touchdown catches by a junior named Charles Dixon. For the uh, for the Falcons, you know, we um, keep thinking that uh, I always say we keep thinking. I think it's only Matt Walker's third season, but we you know we think that Walker's going to be the guy who can turn them around a little bit. And I thought there were flashes of that on Friday night. And it's so hard in week some of these week one. I don't call them mismatches, but interconference matches. Let's say to you know for the team that loses. But they lose to a top twenty-five team, or to a, like, or they lose to a really solid program, a storied program. Um, 
you know, to go going, you know, play a game like that uh, against St. John's on a, on opening day has got to be kind of tough atmosphere wise. Uh, it's so hard to judge those teams how they're going to perform in their own conference. Like, I, I wonder, does this mean River Falls might be, uh, you know, Midland Wyack program? Are they are they taking steps? I watched a bunch of um, of Platteville and Buena Vista uh, on Saturday just because I was curious about Platteville. But there were some times where Buena Vista looked good. They put together a nice long drive driving down the field. And I'm wondering to myself, does this mean Platteville doesn't have that good of a defense? Or does this mean that Buena Vista might be pretty good this year in the, in the Iowa Conference? You know, and it's I think it's kind of hard to tell in, in the first week. You know what to make of of certain teams until you get in, you know you, you see them a few times. But I thought there were there were uh, you know River Falls might fit that description. We've uh, there are a couple of uh, there are a bunch of other new coaches. That, uh, if we have time, we'll come back and we'll we'll talk about them later. Especially uh, the four other new coaches in the Ohio Athletic Conference. But I wanted to harken back to something that you mentioned earlier, Keith. You talked about how especially in Week One. Uh, teams can be inconsistent, players can be inconsistent. And I wonder if that's a factor in some of the, the big stories that happened on Saturday. I'm thinking about Delaware Valley scoring 28 points in the fourth quarter to come back and beat Rowan for the first time ever in the history of that program. Uh, Whitewater just looking awful for 45 minutes offensively and then coming back and finding 17 points in the fourth quarter to avoid embarrassment against WashU. And, and uh, not as similarly in terms of of embarrassment, I think if Oshkosh had lost on the road to Central, uh, you know, especially if you know if you look at Central as a as a program's history rather than how they've played the last couple of years, I don't think that would have been too much of a surprise. But Oshkosh comes back and scores the last twenty four points to beat Central. You think that's part of that? Yeah, I think you know in week one your team doesn't have its identity yet, and so you you know your team. And, and this is speaking, you know, as a, a bunch of different guys as one organism in, in some ways. You, you know, it doesn't it doesn't know if it can withstand adversity yet, and, and you don't find that out until you uh, go through those situations in, in a game. And, and uh, you know, the teeth. Sometimes guys are nervous first week. First week, you know, you build up so much to this first game, and then uh, and then you get out there and you're actually playing. And you know, you may get beat for a touchdown, or you get run over by somebody. And it sometimes takes guys, you know, sometimes it takes people a series. Sometimes it takes people several quarters to get their feet under them and to relax and be like, "This is this is football. I practiced this, you know, eight hundred times. I'm, I I can do this out here." And so there's a lot of things, you know, that go on, I guess, in a player's mind in week one that won't go on in a player's mind in week eight. You know that because they'll be comfortable. I think there's uh, just just from a self confidence standpoint and a belief standpoint, and from your team functioning uh, as one. You know, finding out who your leaders are and, and saying, okay, we're down 17, but we can do this. You know, and there there were some great comebacks uh, over the over the weekend. You know, we we will talk about Wesley and Widener at some point. Um, that there was a comeback in that game, and there was you know we Franklin didn't end up winning, but they came from behind, and there was not. Just the teams you mentioned, you know, the Whitewater, the DelVal, and the Oshkosh. Um, but there were there were several performances across the country where you saw that that big fluctuation. And I think it just went, you know, early in the season, you, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get out of a team. And your, your team hasn't figured out its identity yet. For Delaware Valley, I, I was looking at that game. They were down, what, 27-7. to um, You know, we'd, we'd had some, you know, con- uh, not contradictions, but... Um, when we were doing preseason predictions uh, in kickoff, and if you haven't bought kickoff, by the way, oh, if you have, because uh, you know many, many of you have, thank you very much. Um, that's our preseason uh, preview, which is basically the only thing that we sell on any of our sites all year, uh, and the uh, the money we raise from that obviously helps us do this. Uh, this is, uh, you know, we don't charge you for it, so uh, for anything else on the site. Uh, so thank you for doing that because it is a, uh, it's a big project for us. Um, but, uh, when we were talking about and looking at the Mac, yeah, there was kind of some disagreement as to, you know, what order the top three might in. And, and frankly, some disagreement as to whether Delaware Valley was even in that top three. And I, I looked at that game through three quarters and I thought, well, you know, maybe I was wrong about Delaware Valley. Um, and now, you know, obviously you can't draw, uh, a hard and fast conclusion from week one, but, uh, at least Delaware Valley showed that it had some uh, had some fortitude and some ability to come back. Absolutely, you know, twenty eight points in the fourth quarter is one thing. 
against a bad team, but you do 28 points in, in, in the fourth quarter against Rowan, a team that was in the playoffs last year, a team that's, you know, perennially uh, pretty good, a team that's close enough to you that, it, you know, it, it can can uh, bring some, you know, a significant uh, bunch of fans up to Doylestown. So there was there was probably, uh, I, I think there's there, that says a lot about DelVal, and, 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 you know, we'll, you you had a good inkling about them uh, when we were discussing this during kickoff. And, uh, you know, it is very tempting when you see some of these scores week one to be like, ah, I had a good feeling about them. Or, uh, I, you know, you find, we, see, we saw a few surprises. But, um, but I thought Del Val was one of the ones where, where, you know, you look at that score early in the day and it's 27-7, and then you turn around and you see the final, and you go, whoa, what happened there? And now we got to start really paying close attention to them. They might be someone to watch this year. Uh, some of the teams that I thought I had a good feeling about in August who uh, made me think differently today, and we may not have a time to talk too much more about these, but uh, um, first of all, uh, Maranatha Baptist, who was 244th out of 244 and had lost uh, 10 consecutive games. Uh, they defeated Martin Luther 56-54 in a game in which, if I read the box score correctly, nobody even attempted uh, to kick an extra point. Uh, every single one of them reads as a two-point conversion. For all I know, that could be a flaw in the stat program, but uh, I, there were certainly not any uh, extra point kicks that were converted. Uh, they were all either twos or zeros. And then Hendricks, we should at least talk about Hendricks for a, for a second, because uh, Hendricks uh, faced Westminster of Missouri, um, an established program in one of the worst conferences in Division Three, and a team that we predicted to be pretty much at the bottom of that conference, um, this was a really interesting matchup, and you know, if I had, um, uh, you know, if you thought about how Hendricks, a, a team playing it, basically its first game, its first game in more than fifty years, uh, might match up against a program like that, I, I really did seem like it could be a toss-up, and and it was a back-and-forth game, and Hendricks comes out with the victory. Yeah, it turns out it was kind of a toss-up, forty-six, forty-four, and uh, you know, for a program to to start off on the right foot with a with a victory, I think is is it's pretty huge. Imagine for their confidence, you know there were a handful of firsts on uh, over this first weekend. Uh, you know the three teams that were new playing their first game, the three teams that were transferring uh, or transferring, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. Transitioning is the word I was looking for over from NAIA, and uh, you know we talked about the first in terms of the coaching changeovers. You know, so it's not only a first week of football, but there are a lot of firsts going on. Uh, Hendricks was the only one that, that won, and I'll just quickly mention all the scores from the uh, the first-year teams, right? So we had Hendricks, 46-44. Southwestern of Texas played Texas Lutheran and lost 44-14. Uh, I did take a look at the box score to see if those 14 points came early or not, but they didn't score until the third quarter in that game. Uh, Barry lost 37-0 to Maryville. And, you know, Texas Lutheran, Lutheran and Maryville are not powerhouse programs. They're sort of middle programs in pretty good or, or you know, halfway decent conferences. But I, I think Hendricks probably benefited from its matchup as much as any of those three teams. Uh, Alfred State, you know, tough tough first game in Division Three to, to play Ohio Northern, 55-0 on that one. Methodist, 33. Southern Virginia, 20. Southern Virginia is, is, uh, was 5-6 and six last year playing a sort of a NAIA schedule with some D3 teams on it. And uh, Iowa Wesleyan uh, made the transition as well and lost to Simpson 55-21. The, uh, one of the other things, that, uh, a couple of these games really well attended. Uh, Barry had 6,700 uh, for their initial game, and Southwestern had 58-51. That's what they reported for their attendance. So at the very least, um, you know, they had, uh, they had a good atmosphere to play in. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first game in school history is is, is uh, exciting. I think for uh, for any team, or you know, whether a team is, is playing for the first time or reviving a program, you know, it, it's a uh, it's one of those games that if you live you know an hour or two away, you may drive in where you may not for just a middle of the season regular game. You know, we should mention Pat while we're while we're talking about it. Some some teams uh, who are still in that startup phase, um, but. Uh, but aren't in their first year anymore in uh, Misericordia and Pacific. Yeah, and uh, Pacific uh, starting year four. In a lot of cases, you remember um, in previous years, some programs that have gone into the fourth year of their program have done pretty well. Uh, and Pacific, I, I know that, you know, I think that, I, hopefully I speak for both of us, you obviously have the power to speak for yourself. Um, and I thought 
we had some pretty high hopes for Pacific. We thought Pacific might have, you know, the kind of season that would be typical of a of a of a senior laden team that had been playing uh, basically all those guys for four years. Uh, to go, however, halfway across the country, play at Adrian, the champion of you know, granted a lower level conference in Division Three, probably a conference in the fourth tier, the fourth quintile of five. Um, that's fourth from the top, of course. Um, they had to go in there and, and win that game. Uh, you know, I knew that it was possible. i just not sure I necessarily expected it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that work there. You know, the, the road trip is just, it's not typical for D3 teams to, to have to fly, to have to go across the country. It's maybe a little more typical if you're, if you're in the you know, deep south or on the west coast, like Pacific uh, is on the west coast in, in Oregon. Um, but it's still, it's not really that, that typical. That's a big deal for a D3 team. And then, yeah, you're, you're talking, Pat, you mentioned it, playing a team that won its conference last year. So, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a no-slouch team that has a lot of confidence and uh, has a pretty good following. I thought that's a that's a really uh, big step forward, step in the right direction for uh, for Pacific. And I know they've been, you know, enthusiastic there, and they're hoping to make that step forward. But there's nothing like feeling it, uh, you know, on the field. And then in the first week of the season, I think that usually, uh, you know, you, you build just big confidence when you win the first week. And now if they can put that put a couple wins together, you know, that, that that's the team to watch. Misericordia is a program that is uh, starting its second season. They haven't won a game yet. Um, but, you know, when you compare game 11 to game 1, both of them against the same opponent, Misericordia looked a heck of a lot better against Gettysburg on Saturday than they did uh, to open up 2012. Yeah, really big difference. In fact, they led this game uh, on Saturday uh, 29-26 at the half. Last year they lost 70-0 to against Gettysburg. Uh, so tough debut, and if you know for a team like Barry that, that that got blown out in its first game, take a look at Misericordia and see maybe where you are in your second year. Uh, Misericordia ended up losing to Gettysburg, sixty-two forty, but they had a, a big performance uh, on on offense. Uh, sophomore quarterback Jeff Puckett, three hundred twenty-one yards rushing. That's not passing. That's rushing in five touchdowns, um, thirty-one first downs, five hundred eighty-seven yards rushing total. So. You know, Misericordia you know, still hasn't won, but but uh, clearly things moving in the in the right direction. The uh, other uh, program in that conference, still in a startup mode, you could say, is uh, Stevenson. Stevenson entering its third season of football, and they have actually they're on a two game winning streak now. They ended last season with a twenty eight thirteen win against FDU Florham, and they beat North Carolina Wesleyan on Friday night, nineteen to nine. Yeah, and that's that's another program that we've seen really from the very beginning. We've seen flashes of talent, you know. And Stevenson is in one of those areas where there's you know really good high school football and, and probably more players than than colleges that can handle them all. And I think you know there's some places where that's the, maybe the opposite. You know, you think Massachusetts, there's just tons and tons of colleges from you know D one, D two, D three, and, and there may not be. A, that many players, I think, in Maryland is maybe a little different, and and so Stevenson is a program we've sort of been waiting for the breakout from, and, and it just you know it, it takes time, it really does, um, and it's hard to be patient as a fan, as a coach, uh, you know, to look for those breakthroughs. But I think you know again, as we talked about with Pacific, winning that first week, and and in Stevenson's case, you know, beating a fairly you know legitimate program, that's that I think is is pretty big. For Stevenson, I didn't think any any huge numbers popped out from that game, or you know they uh, pretty pretty decent on defense, I imagine, in a 19-9 game. And um, I don't know if there's any particular performance that was outstanding, but but I think for Stevenson, you know, especially in the MAC, too, there's a chance for them to kind of move up the the pecking order a couple of teams. On Friday night, there was a game uh, between ranked teams. We were sticking that part of the country. We'll stay in the Mid-Atlantic for a little bit. And uh, with uh, number five, Wesley, and 20th ranked Widener, teams with uh, who each had a lot of uh, a lot of turnover to, to speak of. Uh, Wesley, of course, uh, lost its uh, Gallardi Trophy finalist, or, uh, yeah, finalist to get the terms mixed up because there's two levels of finalists. Their Gallardi Trophy finalist quarterback, and then their head coach went uh, moved on to take a Division II head coaching job. And Wesley, which uh, turned over its quarterback position again, but uh, looked pretty good at that uh, at that spot on Friday. Look at uh, Joe Callahan 
threw for 510 yards, and uh, you know, for, of all the great names that uh, have played uh, quarterback for Wesley and taken them deep into the playoffs, they've never thrown for 510 yards. Yeah, Wesley tends to be a really balanced offense. Um, you know, not just rushing, passing, but they they uh, you know use a lot of screens and, and you know get the ball to their playmakers in a lot of different ways. And uh, you know, I, I don't know how good. Joe Callahan's career will be, but he may not have very many days like this where uh, where he's able to light up uh, a ranked team, a fairly talented team. You know, even if uh, you know, Widener doesn't end up winning, doesn't go end up going back to the playoffs, I guarantee you they have they have as much talent as a handful most of the teams that Wesley plays. And uh, you know, the big standout in that game, obviously Stephen Kadosu, the the wide receiver. Um, who we've seen play, or at least I've seen play, Pat, you know, ever since you, you moved back home to, to Minnesota, I guess you see a lot more games in the Midwest and, and the you know, West and North regions, and I, and I still see a lot more games here on the East Coast. Kudosu had been, I guess, sort of a speed burner, you know, for Wesley, you know, a guy who makes some big plays down the field. But, you know, when you have 17 catches, 11 in the first half, he had 17, 266, four touchdowns, and they came in a lot of different ways, and that sh- that shows you know the development of a player. He's not just a a, uh, a big play guy anymore. He's an all around threat. And there's in that game, it was especially it stood out to me because uh, there's another all around wide receiver in that game, and Anthony Davis, and he had a huge first half as well, and then finished only with eight catches and 106 yards, which sounds like a great game, but I think seven of those catches were in the first half. That was another game in which uh, there was a there was a comeback. I mean, it was obviously early, but Widener was up twenty one seven in that game before Wesley uh, came through and kind of put that game away. They scored obviously the if you do the math, the final twenty six points to uh, to win that game. Um, we talked about Franklin, and we talked about who Franklin's gonna you know how Franklin's gonna go on from this. They play Butler, which is a, a non scholarship but a Division one program. And those non-scholarship D1s kind of run the gamut. You know, you, ne- you never know if you're going to get somebody like, you know, University of San Diego or something like that who's kind of traditionally been pretty good or, you know, someone on the other end. And someone, you know, the bottom end of those programs, a lot of those programs have given up football. I'm thinking of places like LaSalle and Iona and St. Peter and that sort of thing. But now, you know, the fact that uh, in the FCS playoffs, uh, that conference, the Pioneer League, the one that has... Uh, the one that is for non-scholarship programs, they get an automatic bid to the playoffs this year. I think that those teams are going to continue to raise their level of play. And we certainly, I think, saw that on Saturday as Butler really took it to Wittenberg. Yeah, Pat, I think you're right. It's hard to know what to expect from those games. And I think from the D3 team's perspective, especially a team like Wittenberg, which is uh, which is a ranked team, which you know went uh, won a playoff game last season, they have to quickly kind of put that out of their mind and say, hey, just you know, with those those non-scholarship, not not non-scholarship, non non-division games, they don't mean. I don't say they don't mean anything because it's a game and you, you lost and it means something. But you really have to quickly get over that because Wittenberg is still very capable of winning uh, in the North Coast Conference and uh, and having a good season. We've seen it happen in years when teams play uh, non-division games, either against those you know non-scholarship one double A's or, you know, big losses to D2 teams and then turn around and, and make the playoffs in D3. So it's, you know, for Wittenberg, you know, it's a nice, geographically, it's nice to, to have that game in state and not to have to go far or whatever. But, uh, but, but uh, oh, I guess it's not in state, but, but point being, it's, it's a close game to them and, and maybe that's why it makes sense to schedule it. But, but to, you know, they really quickly have to get out of that, um, get, get over that first game and, and, and really quickly flesh it. You know, you watch the film, what, what can we do better? And then that's the end of it. You can't really get uh, get bogged down in, uh, in losing that game. It will be in state for uh, Butler and Franklin next weekend. When they that's play what made me think of it. There you go. Exactly. I'm sure. You know, and, and Wittenberg played, has played Dayton in the past. Um, and I, I just don't get, I don't think there's any reason, frankly, for our schools to be our schools because, you know, we own them. For Division three schools to be playing programs like that, especially if you're Wittenberg, you know, now think of the North North Coast Athletic Conference. They only get one non-conference game now because they finally uh, started to schedule like the rest of humanity and they play their entire conference. Um, so, you know, if your one non-conference game is going to be Butler, uh, you know, actually 
if you're in a position to be uh, worried about having to get an at-large bid to the playoffs, you haven't really done yourself any favors. That's true, because that's an opportunity. That first game is an opportunity to score a big win. You look at a team like Delaware Valley, maybe we mentioned you know, earlier, a little earlier, where, um, no, or, or you know, Wesley and Widener, it didn't work out for, for Widener, but a team like Delaware Valley, where uh, if they end up not winning that conference, they have a. They still have a, a nice win on their resume. And, and Christopher Newport is another one. And we may talk a little bit about Christopher Newport and Salisbury later. But, but if for some reason they don't, you know, they don't they have a nice season, but they don't win the conference, you have you have that uh, win that helps you not only strengthen the schedule, but it may end up being a win over a regionally ranked opponent. So it helps you two ways in, in the playoff criteria. And I can't believe in week one we're mentioning playoff criteria on the podcast, but. <laughs> It, uh, it does behoove teams to schedule good, solid D3 opponents in the first week. And, you know, Pat, you, I can understand teams that had trouble scheduling. Remember the WIAC always had trouble scheduling, getting games. Uh, you know, Wesley, because it doesn't have a conference, has trouble filling out the schedule with D3s. You know, you can make exceptions for teams like that. But, yeah, you know, Wittenberg, I imagine they probably could find a D3 team. Uh, to schedule if they wanted to, but maybe maybe they had trouble scheduling that week, and they and Butler had an open week, and they took it. Um, but it, but that certainly, when you have nine games built into your schedule now, it does sort of make it a little harder to believe. It does. Um, you know, why don't we just skip ahead to seeing you in Salisbury now? Uh, for for Christopher Newport, uh, you know, again, this is a, a another one of those games where a bunch of points are scored late. Christopher Newport scores. 14 of its 17 in the fourth quarter, and they come uh, come from behind and beat Salisbury 17 to 10. Um, you know, Christopher Newport burst on the scene uh, back in 2001 when their program started. I'm going to just say that, and uh, the research department, which is non-existent, will have to correct me on that later. Um, they uh, burst onto the scene, made the playoffs that very first year, beat Ferrum in the uh, final regular season game to uh, clinch the conference championship, go to the playoffs, went to the playoffs. You know, for several years after that, as that program was building, and then you know things kind of changed uh, institutionally. Christopher Newport sort of styled itself a little bit more like uh, like the College of New Jersey, another public school. Christopher Newport is a state school in Virginia. Uh, College of New Jersey is a is a state school in New Jersey, which has tried to set the bar a little bit higher in terms of of their academics, and has tried to you know, and and I think uh, not all of its athletics, but I think football there has suffered. Whereas once upon a time, you could compare Christopher Newport maybe to Rowan. Uh, now you have to compare them as an institution to the College of New Jersey, and they've been off the national radar for a long time, even though they continue to play tough schedules um, and sometimes make the playoffs, uh, they struggled. And, you know, who knows, obviously, again, but we can't draw major grand scheme conclusions from one game, because Salisbury lost a, a lot of players from last year and obviously had a lot of turnover uh, and uh, some issues on offense on Saturday. But for Christopher Newport, it's got to be nice to be back in the spotlight for a positive. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an insight, folks, you only get from this podcast right here, Pat Coleman, making that comparison to, to TC, you know, the difference between TCNJ and Rowan. Uh, that that sort of was that was interesting to me. That's the, I learned something from this podcast, and I'm not even listening to it, right? I'm participating in it. Um, I think sometimes in these games, too, we get a little... Oh, oh, not overwhelmed. We focus too much on the scoring plays. And you're right, you mentioned that Christopher Newport scored uh, a couple times late. The game winner uh, was with 15 seconds left in that game. You know, same thing in the Wesley game. It's, it's easy to get blown away by the big numbers, the, the Kadosu and the Joe Callahan. But the defense in these games plays such a huge role. And, you know, for CNU to even be in, in striking distance at the end of that game, you know, they had they had to limit Salisbury. Salisbury, uh, only 221 yards of total offense in that game. And this is the mind-blowing one. If you really follow the accomplishments of Salisbury over the past, you know, eight years, the whole Sherman Wood era there, uh, you know, when they've been running the triple option and running it super effectively. Salisbury, only 111 rushing yards in this game. You know, you know that's like holding a normal team to 40 yards or something like that. Uh, CNU, that's a big accomplishment for that defense. And I think sometimes in these games we got to tip the hat to the defenses of, of you know, Christopher Newport, um, Oshkosh, Wesley, in, in those games where the teams had the, had the, late, the late comeback or the late push uh, to score. You know, you got to give a little credit to the D to hang in there the whole game and, 
possible. Uh, the other team that obviously didn't need to fuel a, a late comeback but played a great game defensively, you got to look at uh, what St. John Fisher did in shutting out Otterbein on Saturday. Yeah, you know, and, and not only they that was an outstanding game defensively, but it all took place on the road against a team that was, you know, eight wins last season in one of the toughest conferences in D3. Uh, St. John Fisher went from uh, upstate New York out to uh, Westerville, Ohio, that's in the Columbus area, to play Otterbein and uh, held the Cardinals to 14 rushing yards. And that's a huge defensive performance. Shut out in that game, 28-0, but the 14 rushing yards uh, and 145 total yards for Otterbein, I think, is a, a pretty outstanding game defensively for St. John Fisher. And that's a team where if you know the top 25 voters were in, in on Fisher a little bit, but waiting to see something from them, now you really can get on board with them and say that's a pretty impressive start to the season. There's a lot of games, obviously, that took place on Saturday and Friday and Thursday uh, that have some interesting things about them. A lot of ones that, you know, just because of not having five hours to talk about it, we're not going to be able to talk about it. For example, I spent, you know, three sweltering hours at St. Thomas on Saturday afternoon to see them beat Wisconsin Eau Claire 52-7. to And, you know, that's about all we can say about it on this podcast. It was uh, not particularly unexpected. You could watch my D3 report on the uh, website if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that game. Um, you know, similarly, uh, you know, I watched uh, Elmhurst beat Loris on on Thursday night in one of the opening games of the season. And, uh, you know, we've talked about that a little bit on the website already. Um, you know, Elmhurst lost a lot from last year, started off really, really slowly, and then kind of pulled things away at the end. And there's an interview with uh, Josh Williams, who's the younger brother of Scotty Williams, the Elmers running back who won the Gowardi Trophy last year. Uh, and uh, Williams got uh, a, a significant amount of playing time on Saturday as a sophomore, although he did not get the start in the backfield. So there's uh, plenty of other games that, you know, we could – talk for hours we don't need to talk about how Hobart handled Dickinson uh you know we don't need to talk about how Heidelberg beat Alma and that sort of thing there's a a lot of games every week in which foregone conclusions happen so if we don't talk about your game you know I'm sorry sometimes there's uh 99 or 115 other games that uh, that went on too that are 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 just as interesting if not more interesting at least to us or hopefully to the majority of people out there. Um, and we talked about positive things that happened on defense, and uh, Keith listed off a, a bunch of teams who had great games defensively on Saturday. On Friday, um, you go back and look at, for example, the Harden-Simmons-Willamette game, and the, the way the American Southwest Conference played out last year, if you go through, just go through kickoff, for example, uh, we list the uh, how each team ranked in Division Three, in terms of total offense and in terms of total defense, and most of the teams in the uh, in the American Southwest Conference are in like the bottom fifteen, bottom twenty of uh, of, of total defense. Uh, I referred to them for most of the season last year as the Little Twelve because they were just basically Big Twelve teams giving up sixty five, you know, thousand yards and two hundred and seventy five points and uh and you know winning or losing massive shootouts. And uh you know, Willamette was the on the other end of that, they really took it to Harden Simmons on Friday. Yeah, Pat, uh you know, the more things uh, change, the more they stay the same. Harden Simmons still can score with the best of them and can't play any defense. And and it's it's been that way. It, it seems like it's getting progressively not worse, but more more like that because you know you mentioned those kickoff rankings. I believe Harden Simmons is in single digits in offense, one of the top you know two or three offenses in the country. I think number two, and then in the two thirties in on defense, like one of the best offenses, literally one of the best offenses in the country, and one of the worst defenses. It's, you know, just statistically, and and you know sometimes when you score fast, you you know you put your defense in a tough position because they always got to run right back out on the field. But you, you know you scored, so that's always nice. The the difference in this game was it wasn't a shootout it wasn't back and forth for for uh for Harden Simmons and Willamette it was Willamette jumping all over Harden Simmons it was 29-0 in the first quarter of that game so it's a you know a talent mismatch or a you know we we can't defend this scheme type of thing uh with with Harden Simmons out at Willamette and uh you know Willamette started really from the opening kickoff 
uh, you know, took the opening kickback 94 yards, took another kickback later in the game uh, 85 yards, and, and just all over uh, Harden-Simmons 64-34 was the final in that one, and that's one of those cases where you come in to the you know, week one, Pat as you mentioned, we don't get to talk about everybody but everybody's interesting in week one you know, there's so, because there's so many questions about are they going to be good this year? Are they going to move up the pecking order a little bit? Harden Simmons and Willam, it was one of those games where you know the team that wins probably start thinking about them for possible top twenty five consideration. If it's a good game and they both play well, maybe you keep an eye on both of them. But I think Willam at sixty four points, winning by thirty. You know, we can count Harden Simmons out for the time being. If we had, uh, if this game had happened later in the non-conference schedule, uh, you know, maybe week two or week three, I would be asking Keith, you know, if we think that Willamette has a chance to contend in the Northwest Conference. You know, uh, we've talked already multiple times on this podcast about you can't draw grand sweeping conclusions from week one, but we can say this: uh, the Northwest Conference had a uh, a really great week in week one, uh, and their best two teams, or the teams we think are their best two, Linfield and Pacific Lutheran, didn't even suit up. Yep. I won't add to anything. I won't add anything to that. I think that's a good point to make. And uh, the the Pacific win was was pretty impressive to go out and, and beat Adrian. And uh, and yeah, they were, Will Amit was quite impressive as well. The uh, the other one is uh, Whitworth beating Saint Scholastica. I think that uh, let's see that game was yes thirty six to seven. Um, so we mentioned way back at the top of the podcast uh, about new coaches and how about the I remember that the Ohio Athletic Conference. Uh, had not just Vince Karras, of course, as a as a new coach, new head coach this year, but they had four other programs uh, with new head coaches that all made their debut on a Saturday. Um, let me start at the top, I guess, or the one that was the most successful or the only one that won, and that was uh, John Carroll, coached by Tom Arth. This is a guy, Keith, that you and I saw play. Um, which you feel made, old, don't you? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. I remember him as a freshman. Uh, kind of running all over my alma mater uh, in 1999, the, the first game I covered for D3Football.com. Uh, Tom Arth uh, made his presence known, and his team you know, did pretty much the same thing they did to St. Norbert last year, except they didn't pick up any frequent flyer miles. Right, that game last year was in Dublin and part of a sort of season opening celebration. Um, the gift program, I believe it's, it's called. And, uh, so John Carroll and St. Norbert played in, in Ireland last year. They played the game. Uh, this year, still in a, in a big park, but uh, it didn't make a whole lot of difference. John Carroll uh, all over St. Norbert as well, and, and Tom Arth, you know, being an offensive guy uh, by nature, you know, we'd expect uh, them to have a pretty good offense, and they certainly looked that way in Week One. Yeah, they've got that guy, Mark Myers. He's a, a quarterback who uh, transferred from Pitt, and he had a pretty good year last year. Obviously, he threw for 526 yards on Saturday, that, uh, and certainly he has a pretty good teacher. Yeah, I mean, imagine being a, a guy, you're right, who has D1 pedigree, and then, you know, you have a, a coach who's played in the NFL, who's, who's you know, been alongside some great offensive minds uh, as a coach and as a player. Um, we'll start at the, maybe at the opposite end. Uh, I'm not really sure whether to put, um, you know, whether to put Marietta down at that opposite end or Wilmington, but Wilmington lost to Olivet, and Olivet hadn't won a game in you know, a little while. Oh, and that makes me feel old too, because I remember when Olivet made the playoffs. They were you know, six. And, I just wanted so you don't feel so bad. You know, when they made the playoffs, yeah, they were six and four. So. Right, right. They they just won all the MIAC games that year. I mean, the MIAA games. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Olivet's been on a downswing for for several years now, and, and Wilmington. We, you know, they they. I, mean, I watched the Wilmington Baldwin Wallace game last year, and you you know the talent disparity was was, I think pretty obvious uh, Ball and Wallace being a pretty good team in that conference and then you know a couple weeks later we talked about Wilmington when they turned around and broke a long losing streak and you know we thought maybe um, changing coaches uh, would get a little bit of momentum for them but um, you know losing that game by 21 I think is you know maybe more of the same for, for Wilmington or, or maybe it's just a sign that in all rebuilding projects, and I coaches probably hate that word, but as you as you build from from scratch, really, uh, you know, it takes time. Marietta lost to Case Western Reserve, thirty-seven to sixteen. Uh, you know, for Marietta, this was a, a for them last year winless season. Really, 
you know, disheartening for them. They had a, a, a really large freshman and sophomore class that, uh, you know, after that went 0-10, they were really concerned about keeping those kids uh, not only engaged in the program, but, you know, just keeping them in the school in general. Um, made the coaching change over the off season. Uh, you know, brought in a guy who'd been an assistant at Wittenberg, who's a, and that's a, a pretty good place to come from in terms of Division three pedigree. And, you know, while they may not, uh, you know, I don't know, obviously can't predict. All I know is that they're not going to go 10-0 and because they lost on Saturday. Yeah, that one didn't, didn't shock me too much. And, uh, Pat, you, with your knowledge of Marietta, sound like someone who's read the kickoff, uh, read the Ohio Conference for kickoff because pretty deep knowledge there of uh, of Marietta. I, yeah, that, that didn't surprise me too much. I think Case Western Reserves should be pretty solid. And uh, on, the, uh, on the opposite end as well, another team that lost on Saturday – uh, was Capital, and they lost to Thomas Moore twenty to nothing. The thing I find interesting about Capital is uh, Chris Candido, the head coach there, came from the Citadel and uh, installed the triple option. And, and you know, it seems like actually the triple option is spreading a little bit. It's uh, it's getting its claws in some other places. Ralph Isernia, who was the uh, offensive coordinator at Ferrum, is now the head coach at RPI, and they're running it there. And Capital is running it here. I got um, you know a couple texts from a. Thomas Morgrad during the course of the week, and he was, you know, he was worried. He thought that uh, Capital might be in a position to beat Thomas Moore in this game. And the thing that I went back to him with, and the thing that I thought about was that, um, you know, even if you come in and you have, you know, a great first recruiting class, uh, but you're, you know, you're taking over a team that went two and eight last year, you're installing an offense that's, you know, pretty. I don't want to say tricky, but pretty precise. You know, you you uh, teams get better at the triple option the longer they've been running it, um, and we see that you know every year when you see how Springfield dips and falls when their quarterback is a a rookie or a first year starter as opposed to when they're a second year starter, and, and maybe Salisbury's dipping that way too. I just didn't think that Capital would be in a position to come out and really execute something like that in the first week. I don't know. I mean, on, on the flip side, I remember playing Gettysburg when they used to run the old Gettysburg wing tee, or the Delaware wing tee, I guess. Um, and the first year we played them, you know, the wing tee just, I don't say it baffled us. You know, you, you prepare for it the whole week, and, and, you know, you see it, but it's all about everybody has to hit their keys. And if one guy is in the wrong place, and, and they, you know, a fullback can take a, can take a run right up the middle. And, uh, you know, the triple option is that way in a lot of ways. Everybody really has to play, I know it's coach speak, but assignment football. You have to be on your, you, you know, don't try, to, don't try to do someone else's job. Don't overrun the play. You just take your man on and, uh, and, and you know, everything will sort of fall into place defensively. So I think you, a team could theoretically get caught off guard uh, going against the triple option. You know, and one of the reasons, Pat, you mentioned the triple option spreading or, or at least staying alive in, in D3. I, th- I remember talking a couple years ago about this to Clayton Kendrick Holmes uh, from SUNY Maritime, and he said one of the reasons they do it is because uh, they can recruit linemen. In, in D3, you know, but linemen are the hardest guys to recruit in D3 because you know all the big guys get snapped up by the D1 programs and then the, the other scholarship level programs behind the D1 snap up the other big linemen and even if they're uncoordinated if they have that size you know they they they, they get scholarships so the the because the triple option needs more mobile guys on the line because they're they're in the same way with the wing T because they're, the, the linemen are pulling the linemen are more active you can recruit um, smaller guys in, in a sense and so a guy who's uh, athletic in two two sixty or two seventy has a home in D three and he may not in uh, you know sometimes there's you know small as two forty or something like that in D three but uh, that's one of the reasons why the triple option in the in the wing T offense will stay alive in Division three is because you can find the guys to make that offense work and uh, you know that I mean that was sort of the reason behind the spread too because the guy that when they couldn't find linemen. Uh, or enough linemen, you know, they, they would put, they just have more receivers on the field and uh, and shotgun and, and get the ball out quick more quickly because the guys come block. So I think a lot of the, the offense, I know it was a long way to explain it, but a lot of the, the 
the reason will D three will tend to keep alive those kind of offenses is is because the 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 size the model of player uh, that can be recruited into a program can run that offense effectively. And that's why you listen to Keith's part of uh, the Around the Nation podcast. Keith, for those who don't know. Uh, played safety at Randolph-Macon. That's a Division three school, yes. Um, and uh, he knows uh, certainly knows defense and knows X's and knows 75,323 times better than I do. So uh, that's, uh, that, that's the value, part of the value that Keith brings to this podcast. I wanted to kind of wrap up uh, the, the portion of this week talking about uh, the fourth game that I went to on, uh, on this weekend of the four, and that was on Saturday night when uh, Crown hosted McAllister, and McAllister won that game 31-14, but the reason that uh, that the game was interesting enough for me to even uh, think about going to at the end of a long uh, long weekend of Division Three football was to see uh, Crown open its brand-new stadium, which, uh, for the first time, uh, Crown, which is one of... I think it's fair to say, if you go back through the kickoff rankings, they're probably in the bottom 50 in Division Three every year that we've done them... Um, and uh, they're in the Upper Midwest Athletic Conference, which is, you know, still relatively new to Division Three and has kind of struggled and has a lot of small schools. Crown is certainly one of them. Uh, Crown is, you know, uh, basically a Bible college under a thousand students, uh, way, way out beyond suburbia, uh, outside of outside of Minneapolis. And they had, you know, the kind of facilities up until, you know, up until this year that you might expect from that kind of program, uh, you know. A, uh, a a lumpy grass field, a dilapidated grandstand, not much of a press box, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this year, uh, they and and Saturday night, they played the first football game in this uh, brand new on campus stadium, uh, sponsored by a, a, a local small bank. Um, it seats probably, I would guess, twenty two, twenty three hundred fans. Field turf, lights. You know, for a um, uh, a permanent uh, you know concession stand and that sort of thing, and just a whole a nice look around it. It's it's framed nicely on campus because you know campus is uh, is way out there, and there's I don't know if you've heard there are lakes in Minnesota, so uh, there's uh, some good scenery around that. But for for Crown College uh, to to be able to put together a facility like that, which now kind of immediately puts them in the top one or two in terms of stadiums in that conference really helps uh, a small program like that. And it's just nice to see someone who is, you know, again, as uh, I said, near the bottom of Division Three, put some effort into it, get some capital funds behind it, and try to make themselves better. You know, they may never be as good as, you know, most of the other teams I saw this weekend, you know, not as good as St. Thomas, Maybe not as good as uh, as St. John's or as Eau Claire or River Falls or Elmhurst, um, but you know they're trying to better themselves and they're doing some things to draw more kids to campus and draw a slightly better class of Division Three football players. So I just thought I would, th- uh, you know, put that out there just so people know that we think about everybody, not just number one. Uh, but we do really follow all the way down to number 244 in any given year. And, you know, to, to me, the thing that I took out of that, Pat, well, among the many things, but, you know, the, the fact you said the stadium seats 22, 2300, and sometimes just building something appropriate for your school size is, uh, is, is makes it just makes a big difference when you go there on game day and the place is full. And, you know, so regardless of what, what the number you draw is, whether it's 10,000 or 7,500 or 5,000 or 2,500, uh, you, you know, fi- something that is, is, is appropriate, it looks nice, it, it's functional. Uh, you know, I, I like to see this new stadium. You know, some of the best stadiums we've seen, of course, are some of the, the, the classic stadiums at D3. But, you know, we, we always talk about Benedictine and, and uh, Shenandoah and places like that where, they, you know, they're not – the top level programs but they put something nice together where where a kid that goes there is really proud you know to play in that stadium and to represent that program so indeed yeah the the stadium that crown built compared to crown size is similar to the stadium that benedictine built compared to its size exactly it it fits campus perfectly it fits their program uh and it, it still despite that gives them the opportunity to to maybe move forward and speaking of moving forward we'll take a look at what's uh, coming up next week 
here on the uh, Division Three football schedule. Um, let's see. So Mountain Union has a bye. They have a, a week to uh, an extra week to practice and figure out how to uh, you know get everybody on their assignments, especially defensively. I think that's something that Keith, that you and I talked about in uh, our before the podcast, that might not have actually mentioned on the podcast. So yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. That was an off air thing. I, I was just you know again watching the Mountain Union game and. and um, seeing things that I haven't normally seen when you watch Mountain Union guys, um, you know, looking tentative on the field, missing assignments or, you know, like trying to trying to jam some uh, receiver off the line and missing and then kind of floating out in, in midair. You just didn't see that from, from old Mountain Union teams. And I, I'm not saying they never missed assignments in the past and they were perfect, but, but um, I think Coach Karras, in, in this case Vince, is, is dealing with um, – you know he's he's got a, a more youthful group that he's got to get coached up, and that's uh it's it's just not going to be it, you'd you'd be doing a disservice to how good the, this Mountain Union team that just left was if you if you just assume that this new group can just pick up where they left off. You know, remember they they lost they lost ten starters on offense, even though they they you know Germany Woods who'd started before, right? It's it's a brand new offensive line. It's they they lost Nick Driscoll and Charles Diesel and all these playmakers on defense too. So uh, they're going to be good, you know. Don't, it's still safe to assume Mount Union's going to be Mount Union, but um, they they may not be the 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 championship level Mount Union, not yet. And I mean that's the fun, of course, of the season. Pat is seeing. Uh, you know how to, how much better teams get from week one to week eleven or beyond. St. Thomas plays on Thursday night. They go to River Falls. Uh, Mary Hart and Baylor won on the West Coast in week one. We'll see if they can win on the East Coast in week two as they travel to Kane. Uh, Linfield goes to Hardin Simmons. I'm not sure I have to say anything more about that. We've said a lot about Hardin Simmons over the course of the uh, of the night, and Linfield playing its first game taking a long trip, but I think at the very least in a position to put some points on the board. We have the Route 13 rivalry, and now uh, Wesley, uh, you know, uh, we don't know what rank they'll be when uh, when uh, the poll when the poll came out on, on Sunday when we we're recording this, but uh, Wesley and Salisbury, one of them's going to be in the top 25, and one of them's not. Yeah, and, and you know, we're so used to that being a game of, of... You know, two both highly ranked teams, and, and Wesley tends to be the favorite. You know, I, there was a time on uh, Friday I'm listening to the Wesley game thinking maybe this is the year that Salisbury could beat Wesley, and, and then, you know, it, it, Saturday happens, and now I have no idea what kind of, you know, Wesley still goes in, I guess, as the favorite, but um, you never, you just never know, and you got to keep an eye on, on those rivalry games. That game in Dover on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Wisconsin Lacrosse, they lost on Saturday. Uh, they will host sixth-ranked North Central. North Central, remember, uh, lost to Nor- uh, Lacrosse last year, and North Central will be playing its first game on uh, next Saturday. Bethel takes the field for the first time. They host Warburg. Warburg had an easy Week 1 win against McMurray. Uh, Wisconsin Platteville travels to Dubuque in a uh, Mississippi River rivalry. Wisconsin Oshkosh takes on the defending NAIA National Championship Marion of Indiana. Uh, Pacific Lutheran and Cal Lutheran, two top 25 teams that did not play this week. They will face each other in week two to get their season started. Uh, we have uh, the aforementioned Butler-Franklin game. Uh, Widener hosts Lebanon Valley in the first game of uh, their max schedule. Uh, co-hosts Cornell in a, a, a former Iowa Conference matchup, former Midwest Conference matchup, and now these two rivals are in different conferences. W&J at St. John Fisher among the key uh, games uh, featuring top 25 teams. I'm interested in some of the other games going on. Of course, uh, Framingham State at Rowan, for example, really interesting matchup we would not necessarily have uh, expected would happen. Yeah, and now you got Rowan who needs to bounce back, and uh, and Framingham who had a, uh, a nice second half against Endicott. Buff State hosts Brockport State, uh, and of course a bunch of other games going on on Saturday. If you want to see the rest of the Division Three schedule, you can find it on our website at uh, www.d3football.com. Uh, of course, other things that will be going on on the website throughout the course of the week. 
Uh, we have around the region columns. They are like Keith's column, except they focus on individual regions. Uh, Keith's column uh, will be coming out in... Uh, find Keith on a more regular basis this year. Uh, rather than one big column on Thursday, you'll find him in uh, more individual chunks throughout the course of the week. And, of course, we have, let's see, the D3Football.com Play of the Week. Uh, we sent an email out to all the head coaches this week as a reminder of how you can nominate your play. Uh, we have to have a nomination video in hand by 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday. Team of the Week is our weekly honor roll. SIDs nominate for that, and nominations are due for that by 8 p.m. Eastern on Monday every week. And, of course, there's a lot of other stuff on D3Football.com. And uh, so for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman saying so long, farewell. <laughs>